Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. I'm Seven Investing CEO Simon Erickson. You can learn more about our Seven Investing long term investing approach at seveninvesting.com and also see our favorite stock market opportunities each and every month. I'm really excited to talk about the investing world that we're living in today. It's an interesting one out there right now. You've certainly seen technologies be embraced by America's largest tech companies. We're seeing a focus on large language models that are built upon artificial intelligence, and it feels like GPT is taking the world by storm right now. But of course, behind the scenes, there's also some complicated silicon chips that are used for the computing and processing that's required for those AI models. And a lot of these are fabricated in Taiwan, where more than half of the world's custom silicon for high-performance applications is actually produced. Of course, Taiwan has had rising geopolitical tensions with China, who's had trade tensions with the United States, who has tensions with the Ukrainian conflict going on in Eastern Europe. My point in setting the scene for all of this is that we're living in a very interconnected world where pieces are delicately fit together and there's a lot to interpret for individual investors. As such, I'm very excited to welcome back two, two guests to our show today. Rick Mercado and Richard Kay are both analysts and portfolio managers with Comgest. Comgest is a global asset management firm based in Paris, France. They manage more than $30 billion globally, and they also share our long-term investing approach. Uh, Rick and Richard, I'm so glad to have you back on the 7 Investing Podcast. Welcome back to the show again. Thanks so Thank much, Simon. We'll jump into a, a kind of a bunch of the different themes that we uh, kind of alluded to there at the beginning. Um, we have some individual companies we'll get to chat about for a little bit. Perhaps the first thing worth pointing out is that we are... Uh, it's lost for anyone who's listening to this rather than seeing the video, but we are located all around the world. It's 8 a.m. for me in the morning here in, in Houston, Texas. Uh, Rick, I know that for you out in Paris, I believe it's 3 p.m., and it's got to be somewhere in the middle of the night for you out there in Japan, Richard. Uh, yep, but all these choice of marriage in different time zones are well represented for our, for our call here today. Perhaps um, let's start with the macro, though. Uh, Rick, let me, let me key you up with this one first. And then Richard, if if uh, if you'd like to take it as well, but you know, it's we always want to be long-term investors. I know that you guys have the the quality growth investment philosophy. You're very long-term investors with Comchess, which I love that. But it's hard to tune out a lot of the stuff that's going on out there, right? Interest rates are rising quickly. We're trying to constrict the economy. Maybe just a ten thousand foot level question, uh, Rick. You know, how are you looking at the uh, the macro right now? How's that influencing your investing approach? Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you, Simon. Um, macro is always very interesting. It's uh, difficult to forecast. Everyone's got a view on it. Our investment philosophy always comes back to the fundamentals. So from the perspective of whenever the market is focused on a macro event, a shock, something like COVID and so on, you tend to always get opportunities where valuations and fundamentals disconnect. And that's typically what we saw in 2022. So from a bottom-up perspective, we are always doing scenario analysis. Uh, we definitely don't have our heads in the sands. We want to stress to test our companies for interest rate environments, for recessionary environments, and so on. But ultimately, our belief is that over the long term, despite what may happen in the short term, uh, share price performance ultimately converges to fundamental and earnings performance. And I think the start of this year has been quite encouraging. Last year was certainly uh, volatile and tumultuous. 
Um, earnings were generally good for most of our companies all throughout last year, but this year, finally, it seems that the market has put earnings and fundamentals back at the forefront and the bond yield environment, the valuation environment has taken a back step to that. We've seen that over our 30-year history. It certainly hasn't been the first time this has happened, but we feel like we're now in an environment which really um, sees our style of investing start to resonate. Go ahead, Richard. What are you seeing out in Japan? Um, very similar comments to Rick um, on, on the global stage there. Um, we believe that um, all the track record we've, we've got, and we've, we've been doing our fund for about 20 years just, just on, on Japan here, all the track record we have uh, proves that profits are the ultimate determinant of share prices. Uh, you've got to stick with the story. Um, you've got to allow that story to develop. Um, you've got to allow companies' profits uh, to be, again, reflected in share prices. Uh, the, the macroeconomic noise um, gives us opportunities, just like Rick said. Um, and there have been, of course, um, global and Japan-specific events which have created that noise for our stocks here in Japan. And we've used those events as opportunities. Uh, to, to add to positions. One of the major questions that especially non-Japanese foreign investors um, have, have asked about Japan for the last two years is, will there be a change in monetary policy? And that macro question um, has almost dominated the debate on Japanese equities, the Japanese markets for two years. And we don't think that's a major question, actually. Um, the, the, the whole inflation story is quite different in Japan. Uh, and we have many companies which grow independently, uh, regardless of, of, of even a small percent, uh, potential rise in rates. Um, and so we are very much encouraging investors to look at stock-specific stories and move away from these big macro debates. Uh, very much like Rick said on the global uh, sphere, similarly for us in Japan, we've started to see share prices reflect good earnings numbers, um, especially in this last month or so when we've had companies giving um, guidance for the, the coming fiscal year. Fiscal year closes in March in, in Japan. And um, we, we're feeling that's um, a much more germane environment for our type of investing. Yeah, certainly. And we we we're, we share the interest in looking at individual companies that are influenced by the macro. We're not investing based on what the chart of CPI shows every quarter or every year, but it does have an influence. It certainly, I mean, like back to what you said, Rick, um, you know, we're looking at company at fundamentals. We're looking at earnings per share growth that's sustainable over time. We, at least in the United States, have certainly seen this impact the tech industry. Right. You know, we're used to kind of zero interest rate policy for a decade. Money was cheap, if not a very uh, fairly valued stock price. You could immediately issue equity, equity. You could put that into projects. You could go out and hire a lot of people like we saw a lot of our large tech companies uh, doing. And, and there's also a, a huge trend right now. Right. AI is kind of the two letters that that stick with everybody. But the large language models, I just got back from MIT last week and saw how comprehensive those are and how basically every company is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to build a layer that everyone else will build upon for, for company-specific uh, models. Uh, Rick, back to the point, though, that you made about, you know, we're looking at fundamentals. Uh, earnings, it seems like, are being rewarded, at least in this earnings season, where they perhaps didn't matter last year because everyone was just so depressed about the macro. Um, are, are there pockets of, of, of companies that you're seeing that are really outperforming or taking advantage of all of this influence from the macro right now that, that you really find appealing as an investor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of good things to touch on um, just in that comment that you made, Simon. Certainly AI is something that we're looking at in a lot of detail. Uh, it's still early days. I would um, compare that if you look at tech over the last 10 years, 
you're absolutely right. We've had tailwinds behind us. A low bond yield environment, pretty much a um, everyone winning, everyone staying in their own sandboxes. Whereas today, I think the environment's somewhat different. Uh, we certainly don't have zero interest rates and we have seen more competitive incursions upon each other's um, normal environment. So that's something we need to be aware of. I think it speaks to, we need to be much more selective. Um, and again, it, it really speaks to being a stock picker in this sort of environment. So you take a name like Microsoft, <clears throat> to your point, AI was mentioned over 50 times just in the last earnings call. So certainly it did get a lot of detail. 1% uh, of their growth in Azure, so they guided to 26 to 27% revenue growth. 1% of that was already attributed to AI-related services. So given how nascent that is, that's pretty impressive. Now, if you look across the landscape, typically these models, this shift to AI, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to incur a lot of capex. And then you have to ask yourself the question of how do we monetize that? We think Microsoft, so a name that we've had since 2008, is very well placed. If you look across to Microsoft, they have a broad suite. They have obviously um, Office, they have GitHub for coding, they have cloud and so on. But they're actually able to say, well, if you um, switch to our highest price tier of Office, for example, you get access to all the AI co-pilots. So they're able to say, well, I can actually monetize this AI opportunity. Um, you know, if they take share from the um, from Google on search, they also get to monetize that. Whereas if you look across the other companies, most of them are going to incur a cost, but they have limited means by which they can actually price and monetize that. So we think Microsoft are very well placed from that perspective. Um, so certainly looking into that theme. And then to your point, uh, across um, our entire portfolio, we've seen really compelling performance, whether it's in insurance, luxury goods, data, um, obesity, uh, so Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly doing very well on that front. It's quite comforting to see that a lot of our, you know, our portfolio is constructed on, on an idiosyncratic basis. And we're seeing that they're playing through um, from different places, different themes, different sectors and so on. One company we chatted about last time, Rick, was Costco. You know, I know <laughs> that you guys are looking for winning business models sometimes that are resilient no matter what's going on with the macro economy. We mentioned Costco at the time, a retailer, which you might think would be super inflected by or super impacted by inflation. But because they've got that membership model, it actually kind of has some resilience against that. Do you still like Costco? And do you think there's still opportunities in retail, even in the environment we're in? Yeah, we certainly do like Costco. Um, to us, it is one of your highest quality consumer related names that uh, membership model that you spoke to, it's incredibly resilient. They haven't put through their price increase. They typically do that every five or so years. So that's certainly something that should help in terms of earnings growth. We are watching valuation. Um, it has remained resilient throughout this time. And naturally, as part of our process is competition for capital, as that has remained resilient, some other names have uh, not done so well. So we naturally start allocating away from Costco into those ones. On the flip side, luxury names, LVMH has been very good for us. So we've gone from staply to pure consumer discretionary. Um, that consumer base obviously um, is more resilient. They're well off. They don't see the economic fluctuations so much as the rest of the world. Again, valuation comes into play. It's done well for us, but we need to start thinking, are we at peak luxury? Um, is valuation maybe becoming a little bit too stretched on that one? We think not at this point, but it certainly does play on our minds.
Uh, Rick, thoughts on Ferrari? We mentioned that one last time, too. That's definitely the ultimate consumer discretionary, but it seemed like they had a pretty good backlog last time we talked. Yeah, Ferrari is a phenomenal brand. Um, one of the best brand series out there. Uh, it certainly has been performing. They sold out of their Pure Sangue SUV model that was recently released. Um, obviously, earnings were quite good last quarter. To us, the key question, especially from the global perspective, is what happens when we see that switch to EV? Obviously, no one's driven a Ferrari EV uh, vehicle. And as we have regulations and consumer taste shifting to an EV world, we're just not sure about whether or not that makes sense from a long-term asset ownership perspective. We think they probably will be successful, um, but you know, the luxury we have from a global perspective is we can play into a number of high-quality brands without that level of uncertainty. So probably, I, I think the brand resonates. It probably will do well. Um, but we can look at other ways of playing it like LVMH, as I said. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Absolutely. Let's get back and talk about Japan a little bit more here, Richard, because uh, our conversation last time blew my mind when you pointed out to me that Japan's growth, this was in about, I think it was November, December of 2022, yeah. last time we spoke. And uh, you said at the time, you know, that Japan's growth rate was amongst the highest of OECD nations in 2023. Yeah. Its aggregate PE ratio, and you look at the company as a whole, uh, was far less than other countries. The exchange rate between uh, Japan and the United States was at a 30-year low, and yet its inflation was still less than 4%, even though buybacks and dividends are at an all-time high. I think we're not paying enough attention to Japan. That sounds like the ultimate investing checklist out there. Are you still as optimistic about the country's prospects? Uh, no, no, I'm actually more optimistic. I'm actually more optimistic than we were even in November, because it's funny, a number of the things you said just now have already gotten quite a lot better. Inflation is actually lower than when we last spoke. It's come down 4% area, 3% to the high 2%. Um, the currency has strengthened somewhat against the dollar, but it's still the multi-year low. Um, the macroeconomic um, figures, the GDP figures, the consumer figures are all picking up. And, and, and going back to what Rick was just commenting and you were discussing, Simon, on, on, on the luxury side and the consumer, remember that the entire Asian consumer world is, is waking up right now from, from, from the COVID lockdown. Uh, and, and that includes Japan. Um, Japan ended its emergency states uh, much later than the US and Western Europe. Uh, we only had um, what they call the, the recategorization, the downgrading of COVID, something like last week. Uh, and China, you know the story very well. Um, people were literally um, removed from isolation um, uh, weeks ago, uh, and they've spent the last um, the, the, the last few days, the last few weeks, uh, the Louis New Year holidays on, on trains and planes visiting relatives they couldn't see for three years, they will now start to consume. And a lot of that consumption in China actually, as well as the opening of Japan actually, is great for Japanese companies because they supply the brands. Uh, we don't supply Ferrari maybe, but we do supply luxury brands here in Japan, which Chinese consumers love and Chinese consumers are buying. And right now we're seeing those numbers. Um, Uniqlo, you know very well, the clothes company, it's... it's um, uh, sort of default brand almost in Japan, had their biggest month of sales ever in China in March. Uh, and we don't know the April figures yet, but it's probably something quite similar. 
so yes, the macro story, as you mentioned, Simon, is not only good, it's actually getting better. Uh, and the fact that we're getting our reopening right now in Asia and Japan is a major provider, all that is, is, is great news for us. Um, if I can seg back real quick to the, the chat GP, uh, T story, the AI story, uh, we had Simon Altman actually in Japan um, a few weeks ago, meeting the, the government of Japan, um, talking about the opportunities there. Um, and it's a fascinating theme for two major reasons. One is we've got an awful lot of, if I can put it, inefficient workflows um, in, in Japan. Uh, this being a somewhat traditional conservative culture, there's, there's a lot of scope for workflow optimization. And guess what? Um, AI is, is perfect for that. And, and at the same time, we're running out of workers. So why can't we get software to do things? Uh, there's another major reason why the whole AI story is huge for Japan. It is that the people who make the equipment for AI are mostly in Japan. People who make the semiconductor equipment that designs the NVIDIA chips, a lot of that is in Japan. Uh, so we had a company called Ibiden, I-B-I-D-E-N. It's uh, the world's biggest maker of the packages that go into Intel or NVIDIA uh, microprocessors. Those guys announced a very large um, three-year um, capital expenditure plan really targeted at um, AI chip um, packages. These are the arms producers, in a way, uh, for the, the AI revolution uh, on the hardware side. And a lot of those are in Japan. You mentioned earlier TSMC and the geopolitical risk. Yes, yes, where TSMC is building new factories right now, it's in Japan, as well as the US and Japanese companies. We met one just three weeks ago, actually, down in Kyoto. Japanese companies are making the equipment that goes into those factories. So the whole AI story is massive for Japan because it needs it and it supplies it. So for all those reasons, yes, to your point, the macro is... Uh, great, and the specific company stories that play into that and, and these themes uh, are very exciting, and, and they're mostly not being watched right now, so you can get them at great prices in our view. Could you repeat the name of the company you mentioned there one more yeah, time, Richard? Sure, it's a little company called Ibiden, I-B-I-D-E-N, uh, I-B-I-D-E-N, and they, uh, their stock code for those who watch these in 4062.t. Um, uh, um, it's just a great little company that uh, makes uh, the, the organic resin packages, uh, which uh, go, which, which, which package Intel and NVIDIA microprocessors. Uh, that, that business actually is a global duopoly. There's one other little Japanese company that does that. Um, and all of the growth in the volume of microprocessors, sophistication um, is great news for this little company. That, that's why it just last week announced a major uh, expansion of capacity for that business. Simon, your um, <clears throat> your reaction is exactly the sort of reaction we get from many investors where Richard will mention a company and people would never have heard of it. And I always find like Japan, um, you know, our colleagues in China are super helpful when it comes to this sort of dynamic where you can uncover super high quality companies that aren't even covered by the sell side at times or have very poor or low coverage. Uh, Richard Shantana, the team in Tokyo, they get to meet with these companies all the time and provide such a level of insight that we just simply don't see on the sell side. So yeah, to me, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to look at yeah, Japan and other markets. That's perfect. And that's actually the perfect segue to the question I wanted to ask, which is exactly that. We hear so much about China. We talk about you know purchasing power increasing, people moving to cities, you know, billion people and everything else. It feels like sometimes the investing world is not paying enough attention to Japan. Uh, Richard, as, as we close out this segment where we're talking about Japan, what, what's one misconception of the investing world about Japan out there? What's something that you see in a lot of headlines or that people tend to think yeah. about Japan that just isn't really what you see out there? 
So people think that we're an old country with a dying population, um, massive sovereign debt problem, and, and, and so we don't want to go near Japan. And I'm saying that's completely the wrong perception. Uh, you're not investing in the government of Japan or the population or the country of Japan. You're investing in specific Japanese companies listed in Japan, but with global business opportunities. Rick is actually getting on a plane to come out and meet me in Japan in a few weeks. And we're going to visit a lot of these companies together uh, because although he's very nice to our, our team here in Japan, he actually done a lot of work uh, on these little Japanese companies himself. Um, and kicking away that perception of, 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 the, of, of Japan maybe being a slow and negative demographic uh, structure and remembering there are great little companies here who are world leaders in many niche areas. That's the big opportunity that, that Rick has found uh, in Japan investing globally. And, and of course, we, we, we capture in our Japan fund at, at, at Comgest. Uh, two companies you mentioned in the last conversation we had were Don Quixote, which was a discount retailer in Japan, and then I believe LaserTech, which was contributing some of the equipment for uh, for um, high-performance computing. Are there, are there other companies you'd like to leave our listeners with that we should be paying a little bit more attention to in Japan? Um, certainly, Ibidem, we mentioned just now on the package side, uh, Simon, a company called Advantest, uh, as in A-D-V-A-N, test, Advantest, a 6857, I think is the stock code. Sorry, I've been doing this market too long. Everything is four-digit <laughs> four, four uh, codes for me now, um, which is, Advantest is, is the world's biggest semiconductor tester maker, uh, an enormous opportunity, again, in AI chip testing because of the complexity of the algorithms that have to be tested and Advantest for a variety of reasons, including a multi-decade relationship with Intel, is best placed uh, for that business. Um, another company that I think is very important that they had earnings out just a few hours ago, and we were watching the, um, uh, the presentation, um, is SoftBank, because SoftBank, as you know, owns ARM, which, as you know, is the major um, architecture supplier of a lot of the chips that we're talking about here. Um, ARM, as you know, is going to list uh, shortly. Um, and that will be a major opportunity for SoftBank, not just because of the one-off uh, IPO gains, but because ARM will remain a consolidated part of SoftBank's business. Um, uh, Keyence, if I can maybe very quickly mention the last one, Simon, 6861 is the code for the, for the watchers there, uh, a major player in the uh, AI machine learning space, specifically in, in the area of automation equipment, um, getting factories to work more efficiently. Uh, not so well understood. They don't say very much. But they're a great company and just look at their numbers, what they've done. Um, a few ideas there. My goodness. Yeah. So, so much opportunity in Japan right now. Thanks very much for the context on it, Richard. Uh, Rick, let me bring it back to you. Some of the elements we just chatted about, we have to get back and talk more about AI. It's such a key theme right now. We talked about SoftBank. We know that Masayoshi-san has got a 300-year plan out there, right? We talked about Sam Altman before. I mean, Sam Altman says that OpenAI is going to be the most expensive company in the world when it IPOs because of the capital costs required to deploy, uh, you know, GPT and so many different applications that's got out there. Uh, but Rick, you know, you and I last time, I really like to hear your, your, your global perspective on this, right? We're not just looking at how this is going to impact the US. This is this giant interconnected beast that is computing, that is software, that is hardware, that is production. It's all interconnected. And there's a lot of um, delicate relationships right now. We, we chatted last time about ASML and the lithography equipment that's required to produce, you know, these super, very small uh, transistors that are out there right now. Can, can you talk about maybe just 10,000 foot to set the scene on this, you know, Rick, how, how do you view the, the evolution of computing that we're in right now? We know that it's very expensive to train these AI models and a lot of the NVIDIA chips and everything else like that, they're very effective, but they're also very expensive for a lot of companies. Um, 
Are you still as bullish uh, in, in the companies we mentioned before? And what is your opinion about the relationship between the U.S. and China and Taiwan? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, even more bullish today, I would say. Um, so certainly all of the same headwinds are in place. Um, and our view is that they are cyclical. Um, it is very hard to say that we believe, well, it's very hard to find people that would say that um, the proliferation of the cloud or you know, going into more advanced nodes is something that is going to take a step back from this point. We see that as a one-way trend. Um, and the reason why I would say, and sorry for the French sirens in the background, there's probably a protest or a strike taking place somewhere. Um, but anyway. Macro noise, macro noise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the World noise. Cup last time, guys. I was hoping something <laughs> was going to come up this time. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so we think we are nearing a closer to closer to the point where we're seeing that cyclical trough. The end point, the structural story hasn't changed and valuations are still quite compelling. Um, I think Richard spoke to this last time, but typically the market tends to price six to nine months in advance. Um, certainly since the last time we spoke, we're probably close to that point. So uh, yes, we are watching all of these things, um, but we don't think the story has changed much. The geopolitical tensions, certainly something to look at. Um, if you remember from that call, we think it ends up with more and more ASML equipment being used. Um, the world is concerned about security of supply. So that means a plant in Europe, a plant in Japan, a plant in the US. Um, well, guess what? That just means more and more ASML machines located around the world. We need to temper that with what is actually taking place in terms of um, political, I guess, policy. Um, so obviously, um, the Netherlands came out saying that they would restrict sales of their advanced DUV equipment to China. Um, we've estimated that that's a quite a small proportion of revenues that it's going to be at risk. The way these DUV machines work is that you use the same power source, you use the same numerical aperture, you can swap out your most advanced um, models, uh, the components are, are modular, you can swap them out and replace them with the uh, equipment that's used in the lower models and then ship them out. Yet at the same time, demand continues to be about 20% greater than supply at this point in time. So we think that they're quite well placed uh, and certainly it should be something that they can navigate quite well. Great, great points in there, uh, Rick. You know, a little bit of context for anybody who's catching up with, with everything that was just said there. Uh, like he's saying, you know, the, the uh, deep ultraviolet machines that are allowed to sell to China right now, uh, there has been a, a exclusion list where actually the United States has said uh, the U.S. sells components into the extreme ultraviolet machines that are banned from being sold to China by the Netherlands-based ASML. There's certainly some geopolitical tensions, to say the least, in these relationships, but we know that that machinery is a it's a monopoly, right? EUV is something that is absolutely necessary for the most cutting edge chips. I agree with you, Rick, that that's not going away anytime soon. Uh, there is definitely a lot of IP and know-how that's in ASML's machinery. Could you tell me just a little bit more on, on one of the comments you said there about the, the machines are going to be built in other countries? So we're starting to see a lot of interest in domestic supply, right? Not only the U.S. is wanting Taiwan Semiconductor to build plants in Arizona instead of the island of Taiwan now, but it seems like Germany and other locations across, across the world are similarly interested. Japan too, Richard, uh, is interested in kind of setting up their own fabs. Um, is, that, is that just like you said, just going to be more machinery for ASML, more fabs for, for Taiwan Semi? Any other maybe second level things we're not thinking about that this is going to impact? I mean, there's tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that play with these fabs. Yeah. Um, 
It's a good question. Uh, so yes, certainly we see proliferation taking place. We think you need to watch out for, of, so a little while ago, um, there was a little bit of tension between TSMC and the American government about the profit sharing and so on. Um, so obviously, as with most things, the devil is in the detail. Uh, we need to watch that. Um, I think in terms of secondary impacts, we need to look at, well, ASML is a super high quality. Um, it tends to be recognized. So we need to start thinking around all of the other companies in the supply chain. Can we get the same level of quality and perhaps at a more attractive valuation that we need to consider? Um, we also need to consider labor. So um, it's uh, only, a, I guess, a rumor, but obviously it's not just TSMC that's building in America and all these other countries. Uh, you have Intel also increasing the capacity, uh, Samsung and so on. But uh, we're starting to hear um, some indications that people are poaching each other's stuff. Um, so we need to be aware of that. What are the repercussions for supply, for costs and so on? Um, so that's one thing that we're, we're keeping an eye on, but certainly not enough to um, delay it significantly or to say the plan's not going according to plan. Um, but there's always you know, a million different things that we just need to be aware of. And one last question for you as we close out this chapter on the chip war here. Is, uh, is your thoughts on Intel. There's polarized opinions about Intel out there. Some people are raging bulls, say they're gonna grab a ton of share as they open up foundry services to others. Others say that Intel is doomed. Uh, perhaps there's a lot of middle ground between those two extremes, but wh where do you fall on the spectrum when it comes to, to thoughts about Intel as an investment for, as an opportunity? Yeah, it's a good question. So certainly we come back to the idea that we're long-term investors. We want to have an asset ownership mentality. Um, for me, I would say that the lead is too far extended when you look at how much needs to be invested, how far behind they are. Um, it requires that they can execute extremely well um, and that they need to invest as well. And I emphasize that execution point because what we want are companies and business models where actually execution isn't the main thing. This is a company that will defy gravity, its industry structure, its IP lead or so on um, would mean that, you know, Ideally not, but you could get a, you know, a Muppet running the company and it will still continue to do extremely well. The fact that we need to have all those things fall into place for an Intel, it tends to say that when we adopt that quality first asset ownership mentality approach, it probably doesn't cut it for us. Yeah. And um, Rick, I think I heard you say that you're still bullish on ASML. Any other players in the space that, that you're really bullish on as an investment in semiconductors? Yeah. Yep. Um, so we still like TSMC. Um, certainly there are geopolitical issues that we need to be aware of, but valuation is quite compelling. Um, certainly it seems for similar reasons, uh, this is not a company that is going to be displaced. Um, we mentioned this last time, but LaserTech also in Japan. Sorry, Richard, I don't know the uh, stock code off the top of my head, um, <laughs> but essentially... Oh, <laughs> essentially a monopoly as well. The last time we spoke, um, I had said that it is on our watch list we're waiting for valuations come in. It's pretty close to the point that we feel like it's, it's looking um, attractive, not quite there yet, but we're watching that one quite closely as well. Yeah, yeah it's funny because we were just talking to LaserTech literally two days ago and we went to see them with, with, with some European investors that in our Japan fund that were here in Japan about two weeks ago uh, as, as well. And, and, and LaserTech's conversation is exactly like your conversation right now. Do I watch Intel? Do, do I watch GSMC? Do I watch Samsung? Who's going to be the one with the most focus on um, design rule evolution, uh, EUV leadership, 
And, and, and by the way, all the, the great things Intel is trying to do, which I think, as Rick indicates, we, you know, we, we, we need to watch, although it's not maybe clear, everything to do with microprocessor diversity, multi-layer designs, fascinating. It's good news for, for, for laser tech and, and some of these other little companies like Ibiden on packaging, because they make the equipment that enables those, those technologies. The thing about Japan, or the equipment space, especially in Japan, uh, you don't have to figure out who's going to win the chip war. Uh, either the country or, or, or the company, uh, because these people supply everything. Uh, and so some of these companies we've spoken to, we've spoken about laser tech, Ibiden, Advantest, they're making all of these, uh, they're enabling all of these processes. Uh, Chris, Chris Miller, the author of The Chip War, the book that I referenced uh, just a moment ago, it was presenting last week, and he said exactly the same thing, Richard. The wrong question that's being asked is who wins the chip war. The actual answer is there's a lot of inputs that are all interconnected and there's going to be a lot of winners and perhaps even a couple of losers in this next evolution of it. Fascinating, fascinating uh, story behind the scenes of semiconductors. It's so complicated. Uh, chip producing is, is so complex and complicated and it, it a lot of it hinges on Apple and the smartphone. It, it's not to be understated uh, for anyone listening that, that just how complex Apple's designs are and how they really move the bar. Apple alone accounts between uh, 20 and 25% of Taiwan semiconductors total revenues every year, just as they're always in the front of the line for the most cutting edge ships that they can possibly design. And the process technologies, as, as Rick uh, was alluding to earlier in the call, are always cutting edge. You have to have, I think we're down to two or three nanometer nodes uh, for the transistors that are going into the most cutting edge ships. Those find their ways into other applications over time. The uh, segue that I want to use for that is that Apple is also very interested in India right now. We saw Tim Cook go out there, kind of do a campaign, uh, you know, trying to promote. They now have a physical presence. They have an iPhone, an iStore, an iPhone store, an Apple store. I guess the whatever the right nomenclature is for, but it's it's really focusing on India for consumer market for Apple, as it should be right now. And there's also a lot of discussion about India as a manufacturing hub, as a lot of other companies that support the supply chains, not just for semiconductors, but for a variety of industries, are considering India as a way to get away from some of perhaps the geopolitical risks of China right now. Are you all investing in India? Uh, if so, what companies or sectors are on your radar right now? Uh, perhaps we'll start with, with Richard on this, and then I'll open it back up to Rick, too. Yeah, in India is huge for Japan, believe it or not, Simon. Um, it's something that Japanese, it's an area that Japanese companies talk about all the time um, after they finish talking about China. Uh, China is, of course, a major opportunity for the consumer and for the technology opportunities which Japanese companies can service. But India is the next horizon. Um, and I was speaking to a company just this afternoon. Uh, it's earnings season, so I'm speaking to a lot of companies right now, uh, which is in developing a, a, a fa fa fascinating renewable energy storage technology. And I, I was intrigued by what they're doing. They're using solar power to shift a whole bunch of water up into a, a reservoir, which then has potential energy so it can fall down using hydroelectric power to generate energy when it's needed. So basically they figured out how to store solar power. It's a company called Greenco and the Japanese company that owns it is called Oryx, O-R-I-X. Um, they're intrigued by the needs of India for, for, for new energy, uh, the potential of India with its technology. And, and this is one clear example of, of, of an investments they're doing, which is actually moving the dial on, on the whole business of, of Oryx. Um, Fanuc, the robot company that everybody knows about, um, has Indira Gandhi's, um, excuse me, Mahatma Gandhi's um, granddaughter as uh, the chairman of, of its India operation. Uh, 
which shows the importance that they attach to India for, for themselves and the, the, the symbolic presence that they want to have in that country. Um, we have in our portfolio, and it's worked very well for us, um, uh, the, the Japanese car company called Suzuki. And Suzuki, you wouldn't believe it, is getting 130% of its profits from India um, because it owns uh, Maruti Suzuki out there. And Maruti Suzuki makes more money by far than the Suzuki parent company makes in Japan. Uh, and, and, and the growth of the Indian middle class, the growth of um, rural populations who want their first car, that answer, that, that's, that um, issue is addressed by Suzuki, um, which as I said, has been a great investment for us. And um, SoftBank we talked about earlier also has numerous investments in India um, in rideshare, um, in cashless payment infrastructure. Um, and that's an area that they talk about all the time. Um, uh, forgive me, I'm droning on about a, a bunch of names, but Unicharm, Pigeon, which are consumer um, baby care, feminine care names, also talk about India the whole time as their next horizon. So yes, um, India is a place that Japan's been looking at very seriously, and, and the best companies are already there. They're already doing great things, uh, and they're answering, we think, that the needs of India's um, of India's tomorrow, in a way. Yeah, and, um, like that, go ahead. Yeah, certainly. So I spent um, five days in India um, soon after the Adani short report came out, actually. Um, and there are a few key takeaways from that, I would say. So one, uh, it is undeniable that the growth opportunities uh, uh, you go around Mumbai, where I was um, there for a conference, it is almost like one huge construction site. There is so much development. There is so much construction. There is so much growth taking place in that country that it is quite unbelievable. Um, now, the things that we as global investors struggle with, so we do like investing in India, but primarily through um, the mains that Richard just alluded to. We have one direct in Indian investment, so that's HDFC Limited, which is merging with HDFC Bank. Um, they play into obviously that mortgages are lowly penetrated in India. The property market is starting to take off after a 10-year decline. The quality is incredibly high. So in India, you typically pay off a loan in five to seven years, which means that your equity component is very high. So if you ever needed to write off a mortgage, you recoup your loss pretty quickly. Um, on the same token, you're taking share away from your government institutions, your state-owned banks that typically aren't great when it comes to uh, implementation, culture, cost base, and just commerciality. So we think that's a very high quality play of uh, playing the Indian growth theme. Now on the flip side, part of the trip was all about uh, trying to understand, are there any other opportunities that can uh, take advantage of all of these growth themes that you allude to? Um, and sadly, the, the answer is probably not. Um, we just struggle to find companies listed in India that have quality dynamics. You know, we're comparing them to a Microsoft or an ASML, so we don't see that. Um, so funnily enough, you know, the Adani situation, the short report had just come out. There were obviously a lot of um, uh, things that were in that report that were quite negative. I spoke to everyone about Adani. I spoke to the banks. I spoke to investors. I spoke to the sell side. I spoke to random people on the street, just asking them about what do you think about the whole Adani situation? Um, and generally, people said the only surprising thing about the Adani situation is the fact that the rest of the world was surprised about it. 
um, everyone had known that there were issues around them. The banks themselves had stopped lending to the Adani group uh, due to what they were seeing. So I think that's quite telling when it comes to about the quality behind some of the business that we see there. You need to really have um, you know, a, a deep, intimate relationship with the companies to know, know that everything checks out. You need to have strong governance. It's quite hard to lever into that growth theme um, with the quality dynamics that we're looking for. It's a tricky one, right, Rick? Like you mentioned, I mean, Adani, you know, these multi, these massive conglomerates, you know, and maybe we can name a couple, you know, Tata Group and Reliance also, they're massive, they're huge, they're multi-billion dollars. They've got uh, perhaps some challenges for a lot of these companies with internal controls and the governance. And that certainly flows through the entire economy, not just the largest of, of corporations in India, but it's something you have to be mindful of, certainly as an investor. Um, a bit of optimism too, you know, I recently spoke with Pulak Prasad, who is Singapore-based, he has a fund out there that invests in Indian equities. And he said that his average position in uh, in India has that, that they have a ownership stake in has a 41% return on invested capital. There is certainly profitable businesses that can exist alongside those, those mega conglomerates. Can we chat a little bit about the relationship with the Indian government too? Uh, it seems like the government is very progressive in India. Uh, you mentioned renewable energy just a moment ago, Richard. I know it's the, I believe it's the Gujarat province that had just a ton of funding for solar projects and just progressive policies like these. But then also it seems if I read, um, if I'm reading everything correctly, that it's complicated for, for international companies sometimes to get in and get embedded in India because there's things like, that appear later on. Uh, American Tower was one example of this. They were going out there investing billions of dollars in cellular infrastructure in India, and then only only to find that they kind of had some unexpected taxes that, that came up that they had to get paid uh, that weren't part of their original business plans. How do you think about maybe maybe uh, Rick? The question's first for you, or Richard. Chime in if you'd like. But you know, how do you think about the relationship between publicly traded companies you might want to invest in and the government? Is it just complicated, or are there certain pockets of this that are really advantageous? Yeah, it's complicated. Um, so certainly when we look at the emerging world, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, um, whether it's China, whether it's India, is, is this company aligned with or at least not opposed to government ambitions? Generally, uh, if the answer is positive, it, it certainly counts for a lot. Now on the flip side, uh, things can change quite quickly. Um, and also like you look at the Adani situation, uh, things can go too far where pretty much anything that uh, Modi uh, puts forth, Adani puts uh, a bid in and he tends to win in these sort of bids. So it's a bit of a sticky one. Um, in It's almost more straightforward in China where you do have alignment, you have state ownership and so on. Um, and it, it's just a little bit easier to navigate. You know what the policies are, you know what the long-term objectives are. Um, I think some of the, you know, your example about American Tower and unforeseen taxes and so on. These sort of dynamics, uh, they're a little bit more messier to navigate. <clears throat> so yeah, we tend to just err away from these sort of dynamics where we can. Yeah. Um, what one solution as it were that we found works well is, is simply that you, when you can be in a position to sort of write the script, if I can put it that way, um, we talked about Suzuki and cars. Suzuki has worked with the Indian government since the inception of the car industry in India. Um, Suzuki is now working with the Indian government for, for electric vehicle rollout. Uh, they're deciding what kind of infrastructure you need to have um, theoretically 100% electric vehicle sales by 2030. 
often considered to be an excessively ambitious project, but that's what they're talking about. Uh, what do you do about charging stations? What do you do about electricity generation in the first place? Um, well, these people are Suzuki are actually writing the script with the government. Uh, and I think that's um, an, an, an indispensable way to uh, survive in a political context, which can be volatile by, 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 any, by any definition. Um, another thing is very quickly, and Rick alluded to this, I think, the idea of investing in a country from another country, using another country's equity uh, market as a platform to capture the growth of an interesting country where perhaps the political context is complex. It's a very good point, that idea about writing the script. You can also do it as an investor. Um, so you take a name like, so it's a Chinese name, but in Mongolia, Yili, the dairy producer. Um, back in, I think it was 2010, our analyst slash portfolio manager, Bai Jing, based in China, uh, in Hong Kong, sorry. Um, she was used as a sounding board about, well, why does Nestle care about ESG? Like, why do you all care about this thing that we've never heard about? Um, and from that perspective, we've had a very long relationship with a company. We were able to help influence some of their views around why these things matter, why it creates value over the long term. Similarly, HDFC, we've engaged with HDFC uh, since 2009. So it was owned on the Indian fund back at that point. And certainly you do find that when you take this partnership approach to the companies that you invest in, you get to have um, one, some influence, but you also get a lot of insight. So you go to the COVID period um, on the global fund, we hadn't actually owned HCFC. We'd followed it for a very long time. Valuations came down. Uh, we said we would love to speak to the CEO. We got to speak to the CEO in a matter of days because he had known that we were long-term holders. We'd had this history of engagement. So having that influence by being a long-term investor certainly counts for a lot. And it does provide you with some comfort around, well, maybe in India doesn't have the best in terms of corporate governance, but when you've spoken to this company, when you've seen them execute, when they've said what they're going to do and they do it, um, and they pass all the tests in different economic environments and different situations, that can give you a lot of conviction. And it, it is, sort of speaks back to that point that we were saying about Richard and his team, they find phenomenal opportunities in Japan. This interaction that they have, uh, Richard's mentioned so many meetings in this call, that helps a lot uh, in closing that information gap and providing comfort. Yeah, ESG, I mean, when you have a progressive democracy like India does and these kind of bigger picture goals that they're trying to achieve, really important that you have alignment, like you said, between the corporations and the, even from tobacco companies. You know, they, they think of ESG, they're very optimistic light in India. I'm certainly optimistic as an investor. It sounds like there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of bigger trends, right? We talked about um, large population purchasing power. They've got the digital payments that we mentioned right there. Um, certainly mortgages is certainly an important uh, trend that you can invest in. Do you guys have thoughts on, on HDFC Bank? You know, certainly one of the most successful stories as an investment in India. Are, are you bullish on this one? That's one we chatted about on the last conversation. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I'd, I would say that HDF, HDFC Bank has generally done very well. They have a great reputation. They have great uh, risk management. There was a period of uh, some mis-execution when the new CEO came on board. Um, it resulted in them having a moratorium on new credit cards, and they certainly gave some share away to, I think it was ICICI Bank. Um, so that says to me that there's probably more execution risk compared to the mortgage world. Now, what's happening is that HDFC Bank and HDFC Limited are merging together, and it means that the limited company gets to access the funds from deposits at HDFC Bank, 
they're very cheap. You don't pay very much on them. Um, and yet they get to lend them out and make a good spread when they're accessing the mortgage uh, product. Uh, by the same token, you have this workforce um, that are now able to cross-sell across the company. The opportunity for cross-sell is huge. You don't actually have a big overlap between your mortgage company and your banking company. Um, so when I was over there meeting, we, we think it's super important not just to speak to the, the management teams, but to go to a branch, speak to the head of sales, speak to the branch manager and so on. And I think it was quite telling that normally in these sort of integration merger situations, people are nervous, they're worried about losing their jobs. Everyone was so excited. Um, they were saying that, you know, we don't have this overlap and no one's worried about losing the job. The message they continue to get is that they need to hire more and more people. They need to have more and more branches in order to get this product out there. So um, it's quite telling when you get to see on the ground just that level of excitement and that comfort behind um, company strategies and so on. I think you can get a lot of detail from reading an annual report, from speaking on the phone and so on, but actually getting out there and meeting with the people who are actually doing the business, it's quite a, a, a nice thing to do. As we close this out, I'd like to ask one final question and hear your perspective, both of your perspectives on this. And that's the question of valuation, right? We know that you guys are long-term investors. It's very clear to anyone who's listening to this show how thorough you are and how you know deeply you vet each one of these companies, which is one of the reasons I love having you on the show so many times. Uh, how do you think about the layer of valuation on this? You know, it's so easy to invest in a bull market when it seems like everything is peachy and everything's rainbows. And, uh, and we know, of course, through studies and back testing and everything that's 2020 in hindsight, sometimes the best time to buy companies is when it's a little bit more challenging and you're getting a, a much more attractive valuation. How do you feel about valuation in a lot of the companies you're investing in right now? Is it a good time to be a long-term investor, even with everything going on in the macro? Yeah, I certainly think so. I think uh, 2022 was even better. Um, it is quite something. So you can be a long-term investor, um, you can be incredibly smart, and then you can see it all fall apart if your behavioral setup uh, doesn't match with that. I think 2022 um, was quite dry. Um, you know, fundamentals were good and stocks weren't performing, but you really got tested in were you willing to act on that conviction. Um, so I think certainly 2022 was a great year to be, I guess, securing alpha for the future years. Even today, like there are names, uh, um, we have Alcon, for example, on a next 12 month basis. So they sell contact lenses and intraocular lenses. It doesn't look cheap, but the story is not about next year. It's about what happens in three, four, five years time. So they've got medium term targets saying that they're aiming for 25% margins by 2025. When you if you believe in that, um, and I think there's a good case to have confidence in that, there are still some risks around it, but if you believe in that, the valuation equation does look pretty attractive. So making sure that we're building the valuation around what are our long-term outcomes, do we have conviction behind that? When you take that approach, there actually are quite a lot of uh, good opportunities. I mean, I, I use very much the same language as Rick, uh, which is unsurprising. I mean, we look at the same companies a lot. We, 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 we share models. We have the same approach. Uh, theoretically, we have a five-year um, approach. We, in other words, we make numbers five years out, and we base our valuations off of that. What, the reason I say theoretically is, in reality, we look further than that. Uh, we're not just investing for five years. Now, some of these things we've held for, for over 10 years already, and we may keep on holding them for that long if we think the store is out there. Um, and, and so valuation really has to be seen in that way, 
Um, for a long-term investor, someone who really wants to make money um, by the time of, let's say, retirement, five years, 10 years out, whatever it is, uh, 20 years out, uh, that is the way to proceed, uh, get an image of what the company will look like in five years, is 10 years time and, and base um, whatever multiple you use, price earnings book or EV bitdar. We actually use a discounted dividend model, um, more or less it's a, a discounted cash flow model uh, in our valuation, uh, but it's got to be based on a long-term perspective of that company's value. Um, Rick's got a, a whole bunch of amazing companies he's looking at globally. Um, obviously, we've talked about some in Japan, and he looks at those with us as well. Um, but there's a company that I just have to mention real quick um, in this context, uh, because it fell some like 60 or 70 percent during 2022, and it hasn't recovered that much. And, and, and guess what? We're finding it a very exciting one, right? It's a little cool company called Sysmex, S-Y-S-M-E-X. It's a, it's a hematology equipment company, blood testing equipment company, right? Uh, which also has pioneering technology in Alzheimer detection. Everyone's excited about the um, new um, technology that's being authorized in, in, in the pharmaceutical space for Alzheimer treatment. Well, these guys are working on a similar thing, but in detection. Um, and, and there's so much um, information in um, studies at, at universities, institutes about what SysMex is doing in that field, uh, which, which, which gives us confidence that the earnings potential in Alzheimer detection uh, will be at least as big as what they currently have in blood um, detection, blood analysis. Uh, and, and none of that's in the share price. And when we do our earnings work, uh, we try to figure out how those stories will, will actually pan in, in the numbers. Uh, and, and the valuations are extraordinarily compelling. Uh, I think anybody who really knows that story, and we, we've kind of known that company, we've known the CEO for over 13 years, I think, or even more now, um, really, I think, couldn't be uh, anything but persuaded. Uh, and so, of course, yeah, valuation on this long-term perspective is, 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 is giving us great opportunities right now. And um, yeah, uh, Rick knows that story well, and um, we... Um, it, it, it's one of many ideas that we, we think are very compelling at this time. Well, for those that are following the uh, the Chinese zodiac, last year was the year of the tiger. It was a time that had some sharp claws out there, required strength and bravery. We've moved on this year to the year of the rabbit, which is characterized by longevity, peace, and prosperity. Those are some good traits for long-term investors, and certainly was a lot of fun. Once again, having Rick Mercado and Richard Kay, both from Comgest on the program. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the 7 Investing Podcast with me here today. Thank you, Simon. Thank Always you very much, Simon. Great, great to speak to you again. Please follow along with Comgest, again, a global asset manager doing some incredible work. And if you'd like to follow up on this podcast and see all of the companies and the tickers that we mentioned, you can follow along at 7investing.com slash podcast. So that's a wrap for this episode. We appreciate you for tuning in. We hope you have a great week. And we're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing.